We are grateful for a number of people in our church who are medically trained and who volunteered to be available for emergencies like this. Judy's in the foyer. We've called an ambulance, which will be coming soon, I think. And uh, she's surrounded by about eight nurses and a doctor, and so she's in very good hands. And soon, I imagine, we'll hear the sirens coming to attend to her even more. Uh, This morning, we are going to uh, complete this little study of work that we started about a month ago, and we're trying to answer the question, what difference does the gospel make in how you do your job, in how you do your work? Whether you think about your work primarily in terms of a Monday through Friday, nine to five thing, or if you think about your work in terms of how you um, serve and lead your family, or if you think about your work in terms of uh, being a grandmother and uh, volunteering in the community, the, the, the labor that you do, what difference does the gospel make to it? And I want to begin uh, this morning as, as we finish this at an odd place, I think, especially considering uh, where we're going to end up. But I want to think with you for a minute just about our celebrations that we're having this week. Today is Palm Sunday. We're going to gather together again on Friday evening, and then on Sunday we'll gather for this uh, special Resurrection Sunday. We focus this week on, in particular on these events that are so central to our faith. The Apostle Paul said, without the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, oh, we're fools, we're lost, we're hopeless people. Uh, This is the week we reread the stories. We already read uh, one of them. And and the gospel writers, when they write these stories, they're trying to provoke you. They're trying to make you think. They're trying to um, have you put yourself in those scenes. They want you to think about how quickly Jesus' situation changed. Uh, Again, those crowds that that met him on that Palm Sunday were hailing him. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It wasn't the whole city. Not everybody who lived in Jerusalem was there. But there was enough of a crowd that everybody else who lived in the city was intrigued. And they asked questions. Who, Who is this? Uh, Then, by the end of that week, the crowd, probably different sorts of people, but still, they're just known as the crowd in the Gospels, are the ones who are demanding that he be crucified. You're supposed to put yourself in that situation and ask how you, yourself, respond to Jesus. Um, If you were there shouting, Hosanna! What would it take you to change? What would it take you to turn on him, to reject him, to shout out for his crucifixion? Supposed to make you think, too, about what you're expecting from Jesus, what they expected from Jesus and what you expect him to do. The people in in the ancient story, uh, they were very clear they wanted a king. They wanted someone who would be a mighty warrior who would come and push the Romans into the sea and restore the glory days of Israel. They wanted somebody like David who would make the kingdom shine again. And Jesus is a perfect candidate for that in so many ways. He's so compelling. He's, uh, he's got, uh, he can do miracles. He's a wonderful teacher. He really knows how to stick it to the guys who are lording their authority over everybody else. He, he's the champion they, they've been waiting for. They want a king, and they want a, ki- they want a new kingdom, and they want this Jesus to lead them. Yeah, this aura of kingship has followed Jesus his whole life, hasn't it? 
When he was born, the wise men came and said, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? And when he died on the cross, over him was this sign that says, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. There was a woman who, who once approached Jesus one day, and she said to her, him, she said, Lord, um, when you come into your kingdom, um, would, you do, would you do my boys a favor? Um, would you make one of them president and one of them secretary of state? I mean, would you do I know you're going to be in the throne, in the center, because that's where you belong. But, but my boys, they're good boys, and uh, they'll really serve you well. So if you could just put one in, in the, the chief executive role and one maybe just in charge of foreign policy or war or the economy or something like that, that would be great. They, uh, um, what did she expect Jesus would bring? A kingdom with power and glory and rule. I wonder what you expect Jesus to do. What you expect Jesus to bring. It's a good question to ask because when you think about what you hope happens in the future, you reveal actually a lot about yourself and what you love. What's really important to you. Your vision of the ideal future for you shows what you value, what you treasure, what you're passionate about. Um, Think about this for just a, a moment. What do you hope happens Today, What expectations do you have for today? Some of you think about the fine meal that you're going to have today or nap time this afternoon. You're revealing, when you, when you speak about your desires, you're, you're revealing what you love, what you're passionate about. Think, think into the future a little bit further, not, not just next week or next month, but 10 years what do you think, what do you hope is true about you in 10 years? Some of you think to yourself, <laughs> I'm going to be retired. I'm going to take my alarm clock, I'm going to hit it with my golf club as hard as I possibly can. Um, I'm going to do as little as possible. Or uh, maybe you see yourself in 10 years, you hope the vision you have is as a house, a certain house with a really nice landscaped yard. And inside that house, is your spouse and your three children and your dog and your happy family movie nights with popcorn and Walt Disney. And that's the way you want to spend your life, your preferred future. Maybe you think 10 years from now, I'm going to have this sort of job in this sort of company and this is what I'm going to be doing. And this is my work life and what it's going to look like. Probably what you see 10 years in the future is a good thing. It's probably a good desire. Um, Anticipating rest, looking forward to a job, looking forward to having a family. They're good things. Nobody looks 10 years down the future and and hopes for pain, right? Nobody's thinking, boy, in 10 years, I really hope I'm addicted to some really illegal substance. And nobody looks down the road at 10 years and says, boy, in 10 years, I really hope I'm divorced and on the brink of poverty. That's really what I'm looking forward to. Nobody has that as a desire. It's nobody's dream. But I wonder what role, if you look down the future 10 years, what role God plays in that picture that you have of the life you desire. Why he's there or why he's not there. The men and the women who stood around Jesus waving their palm branches, they wanted a king because they thought their greatest problem was injustice and oppression, and they thought that their best hope was for a conquering hero who would make the Romans really sorry. 
Now, we've been talking about work over the last few weeks, and I've tried to trace the story of work through the Bible. We started talking about how God made work. He's a worker. He made work. It's a good thing in the garden. Then we talked from Genesis 3 about how we live and work in a broken world. There's thorns and thistles that come out of this ground we try to cultivate. Work is is frustrating. It's hard. We thought about Christ, our Redeemer, who, who is the one who fulfilled God's role for work. And we work for the Lord Christ. And last week we talked about the word calling and what does it mean to have a vocation. And today what I want to do is I want to talk about work in the world that is to come in the future. It may be 10 years. It may be longer that this future that we're thinking about today starts. The reason that we're starting here, or the reason we're finishing, rather, this study and work here is because, well, if we don't talk about work very well in the church, and I don't think that we do, we might even be worse in how we think and talk about eternity. When we talk about life in the world to come, we struggle because we have, many of us carry around unbiblical ideas that are really boring. Um, here's an example. In The Adventure of Huckleberry Finn, uh, Mark Twain writes a, about a character. Uh, she's a Christian spinster named Miss Watson. And Miss Watson tried to talk about uh, heaven to Huckleberry Finn. And, and Huck says this. She went on and on and told me all about the good place. She said all a body would have to do there was go around all day long with a harp and sing forever and ever. So I didn't think much of it. I asked her if she reckoned Tom Sawyer would go there, and she said, not by a considerable sight. I was glad about that because I wanted him and me to be together. Uh, Gary Larson, you've read The Far Side, I'm sure. Gary Larson uh, pictures scenes of heaven all the time, and there's a common element in all of them. People in white, white robes with halos sitting in clouds. In one particular cartoon, he has a man sitting there in a cloud, and you see what the man is thinking. He's thinking to himself, I really wish I'd brought a magazine or something. John Eldridge said this. He said, nearly every Christian I have spoken with has some idea that eternity eternity is an unending church service. (laughs) We've had some of those. Um, He says, he continues, we have settled on an image of the never-ending sing-along in the sky, one great hymn after another, forever and ever, amen. And our heart sinks forever and ever, that's it, that's the good news. And then we sigh and feel guilty that we are not more spiritual. We lose heart and we turn once more to the present to find what life we can. If you ask most people, heaven is preferable to the alternative, right? Uh, But it doesn't seem very exciting. So what I want to do this morning is I want to give you some clarity about what the Bible teaches about eternity. And again, this seems a strange place to stop when we're thinking about work. Um, If it seems so distant in the future. I mean, you have work to do tomorrow, right? Why are we thinking about the work that's going to be long into the future, I want to show you today that that by God's design here, the world to come is supposed to roll back and shape how we think about today. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, think about this. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the world that is coming is actually your real life. How long is life in this world going to last? Uh, How long will your career last here? 40 years? 
50 years. If you work 50 years for the same company doing the same thing, you are a massive exception in, in this world. And your life here is going to be what? 70 to 90 years probably on average for some of us. We're going to talk today about eternity, what happens forever and ever. This is just, this life that we live is just the beginning. This is the warm-up. You make crucial and eternally significant decisions here, but if eternity is an 800-page novel, the life that you are living right now is the first word of the first paragraph on the first page. That's it. So let's talk about your real work. Your work that you're going to be really doing. The passage of the Bible that gives us the most help when it comes to thinking about eternity is in the book of Revelation. So I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the end of the story. We started in Genesis and we're going to finish in Revelation and specifically chapters 21 and chapter 22. And I want to read portions of those chapters as we continue here. Revelation 21, 1 is where I want to start. Then what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you four characteristics about the world to come. One of them is going to have to do with work, and um, uh, the others will just be some clarifications about what's, what's here in this passage. So Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. This is what the Apostle John writes. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He was seated on the throne, said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, The sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Stop here for a moment. Most people are under the impression, if if you were to go out and ask, what happens when you die, almost every American will tell you, you go to heaven. Everybody goes to heaven. How do you get to heaven? Dying. That's how you get to heaven. This passage tells us, again, in very stark pointed words that is not true there are those who will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur this is the second death let's keep reading here verse 9 one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me come I will show you the bride the wife of the lamb and he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. 
The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now, verses 15 through 21 describe these foundations a little bit more. Let's skip down to verse 22. I did not see a temple in this city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, gives, gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. It's an important verse. We'll come back to that. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Again, qualification. Verse 5, verses of chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing or the health of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. What is eternity going to be like? Four characteristics. Number one, it's going to be physical. Physical. Eternity is going to be physical. And here immediately we come to confront, I think, the most common error that we, that we approach when it comes to thinking about the world to come. We most often think of the word heaven, and the images that come to mind involve floating on clouds and becoming angelic beings and playing the harp. Um, you're not going to become an angel when you die. You're not going to float on clouds. Uh, eternity is physical and it's earthy. I think some of this confusion comes uh, from confusion about uh, future events. If you were to die today before God himself wraps up history, if you die today or if uh, the Lord Jesus returns to rapture the church, uh, you will be in God's presence with him in his abode in heaven. Uh, There's no pearly gates. St. Peter won't welcome you there. Uh, But that existence is going to be in heaven in God's presence and it's going to be temporary. Might last for a long time, but it's going to be temporary. Your eternal home is actually going to be a recreated earth. It's going to be physical. Now, a few chapters back here in Revelation 19, um, we have here uh, the description of the beginning of the final days of history. The Lord Jesus, he's going to leave heaven and he's going to come to earth. He's going to, as Revelation 20 says, establish his kingdom on earth. It's going to last for a thousand years. He's going to rule in Jerusalem. He's going to be the king of the world. He's going to fulfill all the promises that he made, that God has made to the Israelites in the Old Testament. I know there are good and godly people who do not think that Revelation 20 is literally a thousand year kingdom. I understand that. Um, We'll all find out who's right uh, in that day when it happens. It will be us, though. Now, um, regardless, regardless, in Revelation 21 and 22, this is the end. This is what life is going to be like forever. 
And it is described as the new heavens and the new earth. You're going to live on a new earth. You're going to have a resurrected body, a transformed body. It's going to have real flesh and real blood. You're going to eat. You're going to sleep. You're going to move. There's going to be cities. And in Revelation 22, it describes uh, what sounds very much like a new Eden, doesn't it? There's the tree of life there. Um, There's going to be trees and mountains and rivers and animals and fields. John is very deliberately describing Genesis 1 and 2 over again in the world that God makes. That is eternity. Eternity is going to be physical with some key differences. There's going to be some things that are not there. Revelation 21.1 says that there's going to be no more sea. So if you like to go to the ocean, you better get there fast. Now, I know some of you wonder about that. The beach, I love to go to the beach, maybe you think to yourself. No sea. How can you even imagine, can't even imagine a world without seas. I don't think it means that there's going to be that there that there will be not be any large bodies of water. Remember in Genesis one, in the original world God made, God separated the land from the seas. There's there's sea in Genesis one in this world that God has made. Somehow though, it's going to be different. The ocean is going to be different in some way. The book of Matthew tells us that there's going to be no marriage in eternity. Marriage and parenting are activities for this life and this life alone. Remember, some of you, marriage is is hard. You invest in it and you work hard at it and you, you push and you struggle and you strive in your marriage. Remember, be faithful in that first word of the first paragraph of the first page of an 800 page book, right? Your marriage is, is short, short in comparison to eternity. So, so be faithful in, in what you have, that, that little moment. No marriage. Uh, chapter 22 of Revelation, verse 3, says that there's going to be no curse. No curse in marriage. Ever since Genesis 3, the world has produced thorns and thistles. Life has been hard. Food has come from the ground after toil and labor and sweat. That's going to be gone. Eternity is going to be like life as we know it physically, only it's going to be perfect. Now, why is it important that we think about the physicality of earth? That earth is going to be a uh, physical, that eternity is going to be a physically physical experience. Why does John emphasize this here in this passage? Um, The world is not going to be entirely foreign, but it's going to be new. It's going to be refreshed. It's going to be restored. I think the reason that it's important that we think about the physicality of earth is because the Bible tells us that God is a redeeming God. And the Bible is the story of how God comes and reclaims and reconquers and restores what he has made. God has called into existence in Genesis this pristine, perfect world. It's ripe for development and cultivation. But the serpent, he snuck in and he led Adam and Eve into rebellion and the world was shattered. It was broken. It was, it was disfigured. God did not destroy the world and start over again with a new type of creature uh, in an entirely new place. God begins again here. He puts back together what we have 
torn apart. He transforms and he rescues. He takes what, what is bad and he makes it new. Some of you should think about this in your house when your grandchildren come over to visit you or maybe in your own house with your playroom. You put those children to bed, right? Or they finally go home, right? And, and um, what do you do? You look around. Oh, my goodness. This, room, this, house, this place is a mess. It's a disaster. So you pick up, put the toys away. You take care of everything that you can. And then finally you collapse into bed. What happens the next night? You put those children to bed and you look around and you think, oh my goodness, this place is a disaster. And you do it again and again and again and again. Even, even when they help you, right? We're in this stage now where they're, they're working and uh, they complain about it like this is the biggest labor they've ever had to do and no one could possibly ever understand how hard it is for them to pick up their toys <laughs> because, you know, no one ever has picked up toys before. And uh, um, still, there you are, laboring. God... <laughs> God treats the world like your living room. And, and we humans, we, we break it and we mess it up. And, we just, and God redeems and he cleans up and he cleans up and he, and he cleans up. He does this over and over again. Judgment comes and he picks up the pieces and he rebuilds. He kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden, but he says, Eve from you is going to come a deliverer. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the world is spoiled rotten again, and God says, Noah, I'm going to destroy the world, but I'm going I'm to rescue you, Noah, and I'm going to start again. There's this tower that they build in Genesis 11. This is the epitome of rebellion against God, and God comes in judgment, and then he says, Abraham, in Genesis 12, I'm going to start with you, and I'm going to do it again. Over and over again, God starts afresh. He started afresh with the nation of Israel in Exodus. And now he starts afresh again with this new community in the Lord Jesus. We call it the the church. Human beings, we are so rebellious, uh, we are so wicked, we cannot desecrate what God has made so that he cannot redeem and repair it. He's the one who in the Bible over and over again enters the story and brings beauty out of ashes. That's what God does. This is good news because some of you desperately need God to do that in the small sphere of your life. In the small sphere of your life, you need God to do what he has done repeatedly globally and what he will do perfectly globally. You, you're, you have a wreck of a life. You, you, you've made it so. You, you've been irresponsible in your parenting. You've been unfaithful in your, your marriage. You've, you've desecrated your body. You've shredded your finances. You've, you've used other human beings for your selfish ends. And, and you have just in your mouth this bitterness of ashes. It's all you've got. But the God who is going to make all things new globally promises to come and do that same work in the minds and hearts of those who turn to him and trust in him. That's why Paul said such good news in 2 Corinthians. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. God does in your life what he does repeatedly in the Bible and what he's going to do perfectly at the end. Redeeming, restoring, recreating He'll start that work in your life now. He will bring it to completion in some day. But this is what he does. This is what God does. 
On the other side of that, that yellow sheet, if you're using that note sheet, there's a verse from Ephesians 5 that tells us how God does this, renewing work. You know these verses. We read these verses at weddings. This is the place in the Bible where God compares human beings to a bride, an, an unattractive bride. She's a woman who has no, no one would want to marry. She's dirty. She's been unfaithful. She reeks of shame. She's unkempt. This is our natural condition. Do you remember a few weeks ago, oh, it was more than that, a few months ago, there was a woman in Lancaster County who just disappeared one day uh, 10 or 15 years ago, maybe longer than that. She just disappeared and was gone from the scene, and then suddenly they found her in Florida and brought her home. Do you remember seeing her picture in the newspaper? It was stunning. We showed it to my children intentionally. This is a teachable moment, right? Look, children, look at this woman and her life. This is, this is a woman before she ran away, and this is a picture of her afterwards when she went down to Florida and she was involved in all kinds of uh, terrible things. And you could just see in her face, couldn't you, and her body, the toll that what she had done had taken on her. That is what we are like in Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, the Bible says that Jesus Christ comes and he has cleansed us. He washes us. He bears our shame. He, he paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. And he invites you to come. He invites everyone, everyone to come and find life and forgiveness. To turn to him. And he washes and he regenerates. He purifies. He makes beautiful those that sin has destroyed. This is the work that God does globally in the physical world, and it's what he does personally in the lives of those who trust in him. Eternity is physical. Second, eternity is God-centered. Eternity is God-centered. Central to this passage here is the union now of heaven and earth. God and human beings are going to dwell together. And look at how many times this is mentioned here in this passage, what God does. Uh, Verse 3 of chapter 21 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Verse 5 it says he was seated on the throne and said, I'm making everything new. Um, write this down. He said, for these words are trustworthy and true. I'm the alpha, verse 6. I'm the omega. I'm the beginning and the end. He, he's, he's the center. Uh, verse 22 of, of chapter 21. I didn't see a temple because God is there. He's the temple. And they don't need a light because God is the light and the Lamb is the lamp. Chapter 22, verse 4, is the climax of the whole Bible. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. What you're looking forward to seeing. Baseball season's just started. Maybe you have tickets and you're looking forward to someday watching the Phillies play. <laughs> um, maybe... Maybe... Uh, this summer, somebody you know and love is getting married. And you're really looking forward to seeing her, uh, in her in her beautiful gown. You're looking forward to seeing that young man exchange vows. You're looking forward to seeing that. Maybe, maybe graduation is, isn't a little bit for you. And you're looking forward to seeing yourself in a mirror with that cap and gown on. It's going to be a great sight. This, brothers and sisters, is the sight of all sights to behold. 
they will see his face. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you have traced through the Bible what this image means, your heart, you you respond to this, this is going to be incredible. You're going to look back at this. um, Expectations are cruel things. Expectation. Most people, their expectations for every experience they have is too high, and almost every experience you have, you're disappointed a little bit because you were looking forward to it so much. This is going to be the experience that you will have, seeing God's face, that you will say, I had no idea how good this is going to be. There's no way that I could have anticipated how marvelous this sight is. Heaven is going to be... Um, um, God-centered, being with, seeing him, walking with him is the joy of eternity. And, and, and noticing this in the text, I think, helps us uh, understand some of the fallacies in the new spate of books that have uh, recently uh, been published and bought and read. Um, Tim Challies calls these heaven tourism books. Uh, they sell really well. The best-selling one, in fact, the best-selling Christian book in the last 10 years is a book by Todd Burpo called Heaven is for Real. Um, it's going to be a movie soon. Heaven is for Real. This book is not for real at all. Um, there are a lot of ways to critique it, but one of the ways that we could critique it is that God isn't central to what that little boy supposedly saw. He talks about going to heaven and, and um, he got halo, a halo and wings and he was upset because they were too small for him. He wanted bigger ones. And he saw, sat on Jesus' lap and he saw the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is described as kind of blue. And um, when Jesus sends the Holy Spirit, he, the Holy Spirit shoots out of Jesus' hands like lightning bolts. Um, <laughs> heaven is God-centered. The book is a, is, is a complete fallacy. Um, you know, the, the co-author of the book, not the co-author, the, the um, ghostwriter, the person who helped Todd Burpo write this book, um, she's an author, she's a journalist for World Magazine, and she, when um, uh, Todd Burpo said to her, uh, my son Colton saw that, that we become angels when we get to heaven, she said, I thought to myself, oh, this book is not going to sell anywhere because anybody who reads their Bible surely knows that that is not true. She overestimated our ability to be duped. One of my favorite lines from Fanny Crosby is is in one of the hymns that she wrote. She she wrote wrote it on the the basis of a, a verse in the Old Testament. I know I shall see in his beauty the king in whose law I delight, who lovingly guardeth my footsteps and giveth me songs in the night. Seeing the king in his beauty... Heaven is God-centered. A lot of people who, they talk about heaven, they wouldn't really be happy there because heaven is God-centered, not golf-centered. Third, eternity is going to be productive. Eternity will be productive. We're going to live on a physical planet and we're going to do physical work. That's, again, now why we're talking about this at this point in time. Look at the, again at the, at the passage, chapter 21, verse 24. It says, the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it, into the city. Verse 26, the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. 
Um, then uh, look here at uh, chapter 22, verse 3. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. Now, verse 3 says specifically, God is going to be served. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that we're going to serve God? The text is not specific about what that service entails, except maybe in verse 2, it talks about how this tree of life is going to bear fruit every month. Now, what must be true in order for there to be fruit every month? There has to be the passage of time, the conscious passage of time. The fruit trees are going to bear fruit every month. Flip your calendar in heaven. It's going to have to be really thick, but you can flip it, right? And uh, the fruit is going to need to be harvested. It's going to yield fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the health. My translation says healing. could be better translated health, health of the nations. Someone's going to harvest the fruit. Someone's going to distribute the fruit. Chapter 21 refers to nations. Isn't that interesting? We think about eternity. There's going to be diverse cultures and diverse groups of people on the earth. And what are they going to do? The text says they're going to bring the splendor, their splendor and their glory and honor into the city where God dwells. John here is referring to the products that these cultures produce. They're going to work and they're going to make things and they're going to bring these things to heaven for God's honor, for God's glory. We live in Lancaster County. What's the splendor of Lancaster County? Uh, Lots of things, but printing is our biggest industry, isn't it? Um, Tourism. I'm not sure there's going to be much tourism in eternity. There's certainly not, I don't think, going to be Amish enclaves in eternity. Tourism might not work. Farming, quilts. Uh, Fair season is in the fall. Some of you love fairs so much you go to every single one of these fairs, right, in the fall. You love it. You walk around, you go into the buildings where they have all the canned pickles and the baked cakes and the, the, the sewn dresses and the handmade tables, and you love it. You, just, you walk around, you see them all, you look for the blue ribbons, who wins, this is exciting too. Do you know what's on display there? The splendor of Lancaster County. The glory and the honor of Lancaster County. And here, in eternity, it's made on this physical world, and it's presented to God as an act of worship. God, I grew this corn, and of all the corn that I grew, I'm presenting to you, Lord Jesus, because this is the best ear of corn that I have. What would the Lord Jesus say? Oh, well done, good and faithful servant. I enjoyed making corn. It was great, and, and I'm glad that you enjoyed harvesting it, and, and you have presented to me, and it would be my joy to share it with, with those around. Is that okay with you? And you say, Lord Jesus, I can think of nothing better than for you to share the splendor that I have made that I have presented to you. Through serving in eternity, working, producing things. I think we're going to be learning in eternity. Ephesians 2, 7 says, it's written there on your sheet, in the coming ages, God is going to be teaching us the riches of his grace. This implies that there are things about the grace of God that you do not know, and in eternity, forever, God is going to be unveiling them, uh, unfolding them to us. Now, some of you might wonder about this. The Bible says that we're going to be like Jesus. We're going to see him as he is, and we're going to be like him, and we're going to know fully. I don't think this means that we're going to know everything. Only God is omniscient. I don't think this means that we're going to have magical bodily powers. If you're thinking about eternity because it's going to be awesome because you're going to be able to fly, 
or snap your fingers and build a house. I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. I think it means that we're going to be like God in holiness, in purity. We're going to grow. We're going to develop. We're going to learn. You will still be you with your unique blend of skills. And human culture, it's implied by the word nations here, is going to still exist. Johann Sebastian Bach will still be Bach. What do you think Bach will be able to compose if he lives forever and is unhindered by sin? What's he going to be able to write? Some of you like to bake cookies. How tasty are your cookies going to be if you have thousands of years to perfect the recipe and the ingredients are all perfect? What sort of stories is Flannery O'Connor going to be able to write? If she has forever to write stories. Or C.S. Lewis. Some of you want to write. You love to write. You should take plan on it, taking a master class with C.S. Lewis in eternity. He'll critique your writing, show you how to make it better. And then when you write the best story you've ever written in that class, you'll present it to King Jesus because of the splendor and glory of his name. Finally here, eternity is going to be satisfying. It's going to be productive. Finally, it's going to be satisfying. Verse 4 of chapter 21 says that God is going to wipe away every tear from their eyes. No more death, mourning, crying, pain. And all the, through, well, all the way through this passage here, uh, there's this constant reference to light. Did you notice this? Over and over again. Light, 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 light. When John writes in his books about light, he's talking about life and satisfaction and happiness. Yesterday was beautiful, wasn't it? Did you walk outside and you were so happy to be outside? In the, you see the, the blue sky and you feel the sun, and you're enjoying the daffodils, and you're seeing the greening of the grass. And what does that? It's the light of the sun that does it. It's so satisfying to be outside in that. Imagine here, God is going to be the source of that all-satisfying joy in eternity. Many of you have read uh, the book, uh, The Lord of the Rings, the series by J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, I don't know if you know this, but Tolkien struggled to write those novels. He, he had an idea for them at, at the beginning, and it took him years and years to write them. And in actually, in the process of trying to write those novels, he wrote a short story that described his experience trying to write these novels. It's a little story. It's called Leaf by Niggle. Niggle is a painter. Um, Niggle also actually means to work in a fiddling way or an ineffective way. Ha <laughs> ha. Joel Divinity trying to repair his lawnmower. It's niggling, okay, right? So Niggle is, is, is a painter. Um, it, Niggle knows someday he's going to go, he's going to die. He's going to die someday. In the story, it's pictured as a, as a journey he's, he's going to go on. And as, as death approaches, as, the time, as it comes time for him to take this journey, he has one last painting in him, one thing that he wants to paint. He wants to get it out. So he starts working and working and working. The problem is Nig- Niggle, well, he has in mind what he wants to paint. He wants to paint a beautiful tree. He wants to paint this just this awesome picture of a tree. But Niggle, is, he's a lot better at painting leaves than he is at painting trees. So he starts. He paints his leaf. And he works on it and works on it. And over and over again, he touches it and, 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 and adjusts it. And he, he paints this leaf. And when he's finally finished, he's, he's pretty happy. And 
it looks pretty good. It's not a tree, but he's at least one, one leaf. Before he knows it, before he can start anything else, though, in this painting, the time comes for him to die. Well, what happens is his painting is it's, it's forgotten. Complete obscurity. Who, who wants, on a huge canvas that should hold a tree, who wants one little leaf? It's forgotten here. And as the story goes, as, as Nagel is journeying and as he goes to heaven, as he comes to the edge of, of the heavenly city, he notices, he sees something surprising in the distance. And what he sees there is his tree. Not just one leaf. There is the leaf that he painted perfectly there. But in, it, he sees in the heavenly city the perfect tree, the tree that he had in his mind that he was trying to get out, that he just couldn't get out. But there it is in the heavenly city, this, this perfect tree. And seeing the tree, Nigel says, oh, this is a gift. This is a gift. Work in this broken world is hard. It is frustrating. You never really reach the level that you want to reach. You never really get everything done to the level of perfection that you want it to be done. And you struggle with that. But these struggles should make you long for the day when your labor will be free from the curse and gladly received by the king who has redeemed the world. Maybe you pack boxes for a living. You pack boxes for a living in a cold warehouse where it's poorly lit and, and there's little pay and there's no appreciation. I don't know if you'll pack boxes in eternity, but if you do, you will be working in a world that is ruled by a God who takes great delight in really well-packed boxes or masterfully built walls or beautifully written lesson plans or beautifully sewn dresses. See, it's when we work in the world as God made it and we're able to present our efforts to him that we're going to find our highest joys in working. And can you let that joy roll back into what you do tomorrow? Can you let your frustrations that you experience tomorrow and the successes make you long for that day when they will come repeatedly and beautifully and with great appreciation from the God who called you into existence? That's one of the ways that our eternal expectations, one of the ways when, that what we want from the Lord Jesus will shape our lives today. Let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, we come before you today and we are thankful to you that you are the great conqueror of sin. You are the returning king. You will be seen as victorious and glorious in your splendor. Father, we confess to you that we have um, at times failed to think well of the work that you're going to do in bringing this world to a close and wrapping up history and starting eternity. We, we fall for the thinking of, about clouds and halos and robes and being bored. <laughs> that or we fall for the, the fallacious imaginations of a little boy or in some instances, charlatan book publishers. Oh Lord, would you shape our minds and our expectations by the truth? Would you this week when we encounter the inevitable frustrations and thorns and thistles of, of life in this broken world, would you remind us of 
uh, that day when we'll work without thorns and thistles and for your great pleasure. Father, shape us as joy-filled, eternity-longing people in the jobs that we have so that we can build and clean and cook and manage and lead and uh, or organize and write and grade joyfully. We pray these things for the sake of, of, of the glory of our great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.